0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Epstein about his new book, The Quest for Sexual Health, How an Elusive Ideal Has Transformed Science, Politics, and Everyday Life, published by the University of Chicago Press in March 2022. Stephen Epstein is Professor of Sociology and the John C. Schaffer Professor in the Humanities at Northwestern University. He's the author of several award-winning books, including Impure Science, AIDS, Activism, and the Politics of Knowledge, and Inclusion, the Politics of Difference in Medical Research. Steve, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Rachel. It's uh, it's a pleasure to join you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book.
0: Well, I'm very glad we were able to finally get together, and maybe you would start by telling us a bit about your background and how you came to write this book.
1: Sure. Um You know, I've been thinking about questions relating to health and medicine and questions relating to sexuality for pretty much my whole academic career. I I was a graduate student at Berkeley in the 1980s studying sociology, and this was the early years of the AIDS epidemic. And so I wrote a dissertation, which later became uh, one of the books that you mentioned, on the politics of the AIDS epidemic. And It examined how gay communities responded to stigmatization, uh, how activism emerged that challenged medical research practices. So sexuality and health were both very important to the story. And later, um, I became interested in the question of who gets studied in biomedicine and also who was underrepresented in medical research. And that project, that book focuses on issues of gender and race for the most part, but I also dealt with sexuality and with the growth of attention to LGBTQ health disparities. After that, uh, I studied some of the early debates around the introduction of Gardasil, the vaccine that's taken to prevent HPV infection, which is a sexually transmitted infection that can cause cervical cancer. So along the way, as I thought about sexuality and health, sexuality and health, and sexuality and health, I started to ask myself a very abstract question. How did we come to link the two? And specifically, how did there come to be a kind of health called sexual health? How far back does that go? And it turns out that while uh, sexuality and health have been seen as linked for quite a long time, sexual health in its current form and the way that we talk about it now dates only back to the 1970s. And I became interested in understanding that history, but also in understanding the, the consequences. How do our understandings of sexuality, what we imagine sexuality to be, how does that change when sexuality is seen as being a health matter? And then on the flip side, How do our understandings of health change when health is seen as involving sexuality, when medical institutions need to take account of sexual stuff? And then over time, I also became interested in the spillover effects. That is, once sexual health comes into being as a wide-ranging industry, how do ideas about sexual health inform how knowledge is produced, how societies are governed, uh, how people try to self-optimize, to lead, to live uh, fulfilling, responsible lives, and also how do our political battles get fought out. and And, and I wanted to figure out who benefits from our investments in sexual health, uh, who is left out. That's really what motivated me. And so yes, it, it, it built on work I had been doing for a few decades. And it reflects my training in sociology, but also in two interdisciplinary fields, sexuality studies and also science studies.
0: So it sounds like this book is really pulling together a lot for you rather than you know, branching off into another direction. You, it's like a, a big compilation of everything you've been doing to date. I think so, though.
1: I also learned a lot of new things in the process of writing the book. Uh, it, uh, it pushed me, yes, to synthesize,
0: uh, us, yeah.
1: to, to sum up, but I was surprised by how much I didn't know and how much I learned about many different topics, um, in part because the question I was taking, on, taking up was really so broad, um, you know, uh, really kind of ambitious to try to think about sexuality and health in the broadest sense.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing I'm curious about, maybe we'll get to it later, is how much because you say the uh, sexual health is the term sexual health as we use it today dates to the 70s. I'm kind of wondering how much it was that was sped up by the AIDS epidemic.
1: Or- Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I'd be happy to talk more about that because that was a crucial moment in the. I think that the AIDS epidemic acted as a kind of relay that took this idea that was starting to congeal about sexual health and moved it into a whole new set of arenas and into everyday discourse. And that served very important functions in causing us to think about sexual health in, in a new way.
0: Well, as we're um, covering the uh, sort of you know broad sexual health, And you do spend the entire book, which is quite a large book, exploring what sexual health is. So it doesn't seem fair to ask you right off the bat to define that term. But maybe you could lay out some of the major issues and considerations and concerns when it comes to defining the term.
1: Sure. Let me give that a try. You know, I say early in the book that one of the defining features of the discourse around sexual health is the persistent debate over how to define it. Uh, so there are a lot of different ideas that are competing, and part of what I was interested in was that competition to lay claim to the idea of sexual health. But, you know, maybe for the best place where we could start is what with what the uh, World Health Organization calls its working definition of, of sexual health. And that's what dates to the to 1974, and it's been through several different iterations now. Um, and I actually have the current version here. And so, I, I, why why don't I read this um, to get a few ideas on the table? Yeah. Se- sexual health is a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being in relation to sexuality. It is not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmity. Sexual health they go on to say, requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships, as well as the possibility of having pleasurable and safe sexual experiences free of coercion, discrimination, and violence. For sexual health to be attained and maintained, the sexual rights of all persons must be respected, protected, and fulfilled. End of quote. And you know, what I think is fascinating about that is we immediately see just how huge and how capacious and all over the map this definition is. They reference the, you know, the physical, the emotional, the mental, the, the, the social aspects. It's not just disease, they say. They wanna put forward a positive and not just a negative definition. Um, and that's important because when you talk about something called sexual health, one of people's first intuitions, one of, one of the you know, worries that comes up right away is that hey we're we're medicalizing sexuality we're taking something and and turning it into something you know narrowly medical, but in fact this World Health Organization definition goes way beyond medical issues. It says uh, you know the people should be enabled to have pleasurable and safe sexual experiences. Since when does modern medicine talk about pleasure right? And it says that people have sexual rights that must be protected if sexual health is to be achieved. I think this emphasis on rights as part of the definition is kind of fascinating. Um, This would again, take us back to the HIV AIDS epidemic and the role of activism then. So um, I guess, you know, you asked me what I would want to put on the table. I think a definition that is this grand immediately raises a whole host of questions. And, uh, Let let, let me see if I can state a few of them. First of all, there's what you might call the stability of the object. Uh, Can sexual health actually cohere or does it fly off in too many different directions? And as I researched and as I learned, one of the things I found is that sexual health now describes research programs and medical campaigns, but it's also a marketing category. Um, you know, you go to websites to buy products and it's sexual health is the category. It's a coded language for talking about rights. It's a language for talking about sexual abuse. It's a way of talking about reproductive health and rights. It's become a bit of a buzzword, uh, which isn't necessarily bad, but it raises questions about whether anything actually links the different meanings. That's one issue. There's also, I think, a big problem here of universalism. Here we've got the World Health Organization. They're putting on its webpage this global definition. What about cultural variability? We know that sexuality varies so much from one society to another. Um, We know that ideas about what it means to be healthy also vary. So do the many meanings of sexual health allow different conceptions of it to to flourish in different places? Uh, A third question is, who gets to say? You know, the, the, taking sexuality and speaking of, of it as, as a matter of sexual health is in some ways to a matter a, an issue of turning sexuality over to the experts. But there are so many different kinds of experts nowadays who have things to say about sexuality and health. There are traditional kinds of experts. There are much more alternative ones. There are credentialed experts with MDs and PhDs, and there are more experience-based experts who are, um, basically uh, laying claim to expertise on the basis of what they've accomplished and what, what, uh, what kinds of groups they've worked with, what they've been involved in. They're a community-based experts. So there's so many different kinds of experts that we have to think, um, uh, whose, whose claims we need to consider in order to assess what it means to have sexuality be a matter that's been you know, expertified in all these ways. And then um, one last, you know, related concern is that we might be medically enforcing norms about sexuality when we create ideas of sexual health by generating an idea of what it means to be sexually normal because medicine tells us what's, what's normal, what's abnormal. But, you know, at the same time, if our ideas about sexual health are so diverse, then maybe there isn't just one norm. Maybe there are many different norms. So I came up with all of these questions that have, in you know, all of them have a, well, on the one side, but on the other side, and where there are no simple answers. I think that sexual health has become a place where we end up doing battle around questions of normality, of pleasure, of universalism, risk, responsibility, rights. Uh, but it's also important to say that the, um, the stakes are different for different groups. That people of different gender identities, different sexual identities, races, ethnicities, religions, nationalities, abilities or disabilities, et cetera, may not be running the same risks, may not be reaping the same benefits from all of these uh, discourses and practices of sexual health. And so I want to say from the beginning that when we think about the consequences of all the projects and all the programs that refer to sexual health, we need to think about questions of social inequality, social hierarchy, and social justice. That's some ideas for me to put on the table from the beginning, probably quite a few.
0: That's a lot of questions. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, and I just want to go back to the, the WHO's definition for a moment because uh, as you say, it, it it introduces a lot and could cover a lot. And just in terms of it as a working definition, somebody once said to me about the, the WHO's definition of health, which is uh, shorter and pithier than the one for sexual health. Uh, and that is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, complete physical, mental and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And this person said to me, they'd never known anyone who could actually meet that definition. And I wonder, you know, is there anybody who could meet their definition of sexual health or is it just, is it meant to be a goal or is it meant to be something worked towards, you know, rather than an attainable end?
1: It's a great question, Rachel. Um, You know, you're right that the definition, first of all, you're right that the definition of sexual health is modeled on the WHO's very grand definition of health in general. But, you know, when you say, I've never met anyone who could meet the definition, it seems to me that that places the burden on the individual. Why don't they live up to the definition? And in fairness to the WHO, I don't think that's what they intend. They're taking a societal level public health perspective and saying, what are the structural and cultural conditions of a society that would allow healthy or sexually healthy individuals to flourish? Uh, What would enable health or sexual health at the level of how our societies are organized? So when the definition says that sexual health requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships, as well as the possibility of having pleasurable and safe experiences free of coercion, discrimination, and violence. Yeah, they know that no individual on their own can can will that world into being. The society has to be set up to enable it. The culture has to change. And in that sense, you could say it's not just an aspirational definition, though, yeah, it's definitely that. It's also a political definition, one that was developed out of the work of transnational advocacy groups that met and that lobbied the WHO and that insisted on putting words like rights, you know, in, into, the, into it. Uh, now, is it realistic to put forward a definition like that? Well, you know, in a certain sense, probably not. And, and, and here I want to remind you that this is what the WHO calls its working definition of sexual health. Um, as opposed to its definition of sexual health, which is formal and they claim it. But in the case of sexual health, it's a working definition. And what does that mean? It appears on their webpage, but they've got this disclaimer at the bottom saying it's not an official statement of the agency. And why is that? Well, because in order for it to be an official statement of the agency, something called the World Health Assembly would have to vote and accept it. And Quite frankly, sexuality is one of the areas where the 194 member states of the World Health Assembly are least likely to agree. So here you see the WHO trying to have it both ways. They officially distance themselves from what they call a working definition, even while they post it on their own website. And so the WHO has generally sought uh, not to stir up trouble, not to make too many waves. They're not trying to seek global consensus on this definition of sexual health. And often instead, they've tried to promote this agenda and even you know, these relatively political ideas that I described while at the same time flying a little bit under the radar. Hmm.
0: So that's looking at definitions and I think, wanted to move a little bit further into the book and specifically part two, because this deals with operationalizing sexual health and something you brought up as one of your, uh, your fourth question, I think, which is, you know, are, are there many different norms and what are norms? So operationalizing sexual health, as you define it is how sexual health has been made a workable object of knowledge in ways that matter for people's everyday lives. And some of the methods you bring up include individual health inventories, like in a doctor's office, or population-based surveys, and the international classification of disease codes or ICD-11. So I wonder, what are some of the difficulties and paradoxes inherent in trying to pin down these averages, norms, and diagnoses related to sexual health? And I know it's a really big area, so if you want to kind of hone in on one example, that would be fine. Well, sure. Sure. Well,
1: uh, let, let's talk about surveys, because, you know, people are fascinated by sexual health surveys. Everyone wants to hear the results of sex surveys. That's why, uh, you know, Kinsey's studies in the 1950s were so controversial, but also completely unexpected runaway bestsellers. And with the rise of sexual health, one of the things that I describe as part of this process of operationalization is this interest in coming up with the numbers to characterize it, right? We, we, we make this a, a workable scientific object. We tame it, in a sense, by describing it with numbers. How many people have what kinds of sex, at what ages, in what circumstances? Who uses condoms? How does that vary by race, by gender, by education? And these surveys do a lot of scientific work, of course, but in addition, they are socially powerful. The results are widely reported by the media. Lots of people read about them. And I'm interested in how surveys have these complicated effects as they circulate in public domains. This is where we get to norms. Uh, They have these effects, well, in part because of the ways that statistical averages can easily become converted into ideas about what's normal in the moral sense. In my book, I give uh, one example related to the practice of masturbation. One important sexual health survey asked respondents about frequency of masturbation, and then someone writing on the website 538.com, you know, which you know deals with surveys and statistics, mm-hmm. took, uh, t- uh, took a question from a reader. Uh, the reader wrote in and said, "I masturbate eight times a week. Am I normal?" And the writer, well, the writer expressed open-minded views about masturbation, but after looking up the numbers in the sexual health survey, told the questioner this, uh, your masturbation frequency means you're something of a statistical rarity.
0: Oh, like an outlier. <laughs> an
1: outlier, yeah, like way off the charts, yes. And so the, you know, this answer tells us something ab- about the power of numbers and about how much the evaluative meaning of normal always is there kind of hovering around and infecting the statistical sense of the term normal or norm um, mm-hmm. or average. And it's not hard to imagine that this guy who wrote in with a question would have read the reply as being a commentary on his moral worthiness as much as you know, on his variance from a statistical mean, right? So I think that's part of what's at stake when we operationalize sexual health and try to measure it, uh, to count it, to diagnose it, to standardize it, I think it's a double-edged sword. Because there are many positive things that can come out of it. Uh, Knowledge about sexuality may become more readily available. People may become eligible for treatment that will improve their lives. uh, And their insurers may pay for that treatment once they have a diagnostic code um, uh, associated with a problem. But along the way, other things might happen. We may find ourselves constantly compared against means and standard deviations. Uh, We may find ourselves inducted into diagnostic categories that we didn't seek out. And it may be hard to press back against the power of these classifications. At the same time, though, um, I think it's important to say that Surveys are just one source of our information about sexuality and health. People learn a lot from them, but they learn about sexuality from so many places nowadays, obviously. Um, And with the diversification of sexual health expertise, with the burgeoning of sex advice all over the internet, even it's blurring in some ways with porn, we learn about sexual health from so many different sources, and only some of them are traditional kinds of experts, like MDs or PhDs. And nowadays, some of the most visible experts on sexual health are, are social media influencers, uh, people with no formal credentials. Uh, so that means any individual source of knowledge and, and any individual norm maker may be less influential. and ordinary folks may have more space to negotiate, to to make their way across this landscape of advice. And that can be hard. I mean, it can be hard to make sense of all the divergent advice, but it can also be liberating in some ways. Uh, And again, it suggests that our sexuality is not in any simple sense being medicalized because many of these sources of advice and information are not medical authorities. They may all be propagating different norms about sex but kind of different ones and we have more may have more space nowadays to pick and choose among them
0: yeah and i think health in general uh, particularly now is not something that's necessarily medicalized either and there are lots of different experts although there's Mm -hmm. also traditional sorts of experts
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you make that point because this is actually an area where I'm uh, t- taking some of my research uh, in the future. Maybe we want to come back to that.
0: Yeah. Great. I just I wonder something about porn. A you know, quick point about porn because I've just heard this complaint. I you know, sort of floating about about particularly for young women and young I would say young people um, that because of all the stuff that's happening in porn. That's people who watch it think that's normal Mm -hmm. behavior uh, where maybe it's not. Um, So it seems like, you know, what you're saying about experts, influencer experts out there, it's it's hard to know if if something proliferates enough. Does that then make it normal versus we used to just look at statistics to know about what would be considered normal? What counts as
1: authoritative is a tremendously complicated question, and what actually influences people may be different from, uh, you know, what, 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 what counts as expert knowledge um, or expert practice. There's, you know, I think there's no question that, you know, young people today, people in general, learn a lot about sexuality from porn, that maybe it shapes the porn in some, uh, excuse me, maybe it shapes their sexual practices in various ways, although it's also, I think, possible to overstate some of those claims. Um, It's interesting in terms of thinking about sexuality and health, how uh, some people nowadays want to talk about porn as being, in fact, a kind of epidemic. Um, And Mm -hmm. the language of epidemic is then used to kind of license various kinds of, uh, of interventions um, I'm not sure that declaring porn a public health problem is precisely the the best or most useful way of thinking about its um, its many possible uses and of course there are many kinds of porn and some of them are much more um, uh, you know kind of hegemonic and normative and and, and others are, are more alternative you know produced from, more from the grassroots um, you know, there, there's, um, uh, you know, there's, you uh, know, there's radical activist porn and, and, there you know, there's gay and lesbian porn and queer porn and all sorts of stuff out there. So, you know, pretty important not to uh, to generalize, but um, its influences, th- the concern about its influence is sufficient to cause uh, Pornhub, you know, this major site of porn on the web, to actually have uh, created something that they call a uh, sexual wellness center at their website so here they're trying to claim the language of sexual health too and if if, if you click on their sexual wellness uh, center you can uh, be advised on sexual health questions by experts of various kinds and these run the gamut i mean some of them are uh uh, you know, have PhDs in counseling and some of them are BDSM practitioners and some of them are, uh, you know, into alternative health and spirituality and you name it. Uh, but you know, there's Pornhub trying to get in, in the act too. And that's sort of a fascinating part of the story of this kind of proliferation and diversification of, uh, of, of, uh, sexual health expertise. It's a
0: fascinating tributary. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we started out this question talking about data and statistics. Um, so just moving into part three of the book, because that takes us beyond the worlds of science and medicine. And we've been talking here about moral, you know, imbuing uh, moral meaning into these these questions. Um, so it takes us into social, cultural, political, and economic realms as well. And I was particularly intrigued by chapter eight, which is the pursuit of wellness, because that pursuit is such an underlying theme, if not an active quest, at least in affluent lives today. So I wonder if you'd just explain three key concepts that were in that chapter about optimization, wellness, and management of risk.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. My, my overall point in the chapter is that more and more sexual health is being offered to us as a gateway to a better life. So we embark on a quest for sexual health, and we are encouraged uh, to pursue that goal in ways that sometimes feel obligatory. And there are positive and negative things that that come out of that. So by optimization, I mean the idea of treating our own lives as never-ending projects of self-improvement, especially organized around the body and how it can be enhanced. This is an aspiration, but it's also a kind of imposition or an injunction, be better than you are, never stop. So if you think about pharmaceuticals like Viagra, which are now being marketed explicitly to younger and younger men. So the idea used to be a 65 year old can once again have an erection. And now the idea is at age 40, your erection can be as perfect as it was when you were 18. Or think about vaginal rejuvenation surgery. Think about all sorts of products and potions that are sold online that are supposed to improve our sexual health. More and more, we're encouraged to self-optimize. Mm-hmm. Though, you know, I do want to stop here to ask, who is the we? Uh, because self-optimization doesn't come cheap. We're talking really about affluent, upwardly mobile consumers with disposable income. And then, um, let's see, so the second concept you mentioned is wellness, and this is linked very closely to optimization. Wellness is a way of talking about a whole way of living that promotes health, and of course, this goes way beyond sexuality, though sexuality is a great example. To say that we need to secure our wellness is even broader than saying we need to be healthy. It means adopting the right behaviors and attitudes to align our, our whole lifestyle with positive outcomes, and... Um, As we were saying a minute ago, this goes way beyond modern medicine. It might include spiritual practices, fitness, exercise, ways of eating, and sex is very much part of this notion. And there's also a huge sexual wellness industry that's very profitable that includes the makers of vibrators and other sex toys and various other products available for purchase and consumption. It's a, a big industry. And then finally, the third concept, the management of risk Uh, Optimizing our health, pursuing wellness, that's about seeking pleasure, but it's also about clearly avoiding bad outcomes. And modern medicine constantly encourages us to take active preventive steps to avoid risks so that we can self-optimize and pursue wellness. We're encouraged to watch for warning signs of ill health, to take preventive measures, like having our kids vaccinated to prevent HPV infection. We're told that health is the highest good Uh, that it's a supreme moral value, and therefore it's our social duty to pursue it every way we can by minimizing our risks. And, you know, what I find fascinating is that these ideas of optimization, wellness, risk management, they're so pervasive that they've now been taken up as part of the branding and marketing of these sexual wellness commodities. And for example, in my book, I give an example of one company that makes and sells sex toys. And on their website, they advertise their, what they call their mission, their values, and their vision. And they say that their company was founded on the belief that every person has the right to a healthy sex life that sexual health encompasses many aspects of physical and mental well-being. They've obviously been reading that WHO working yes. definition, right, and riffing on it. And they say that they believe that a foundation of education will help people live better and happier lives. They say that um, they believe that our past obligates us to a stewardship for the future of sexual health, quote-unquote. So that's, you know, that's a pretty lofty vision for a sex toy manufacturer, but it kind of makes sense in a world where we're all impelled to self optimize in the pursuit of sexual wellness. And I, I just wanna maybe say another word here, um, because these kinds of examples might lead you to, conc- to conclude that I'm generally suspicious uh, or critical of self optimization as a goal. And, you know, in fact, over the course of writing the book, I ended up adopting a somewhat more mixed assessment. So take another example, which would be PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. Uh, This is the practice of taking antiretroviral drugs, not because you're HIV positive and you you need to um, keep yourself from getting sick, but rather you take the antiretroviral drugs, a, a lower dose, on a daily basis to prevent HIV infection, even if you were to be exposed. And, uh, you know, this is very important for sexually active gay men in particular, as well as people whose partners are HIV positive. And it's a way of using pharmaceuticals to to optimize our sexuality, uh, to minimize risk, to protect our health. And for sure, it is an example of how our sexuality is being biomedicalized. but. It's not just about individual optimization. It it seems to me it also has a collective political side to it. For gay men, it's a form of community self-preservation. It's a way of rescuing pleasurable sex from the threat of HIV infection. It's also been a way of avoiding the stigmatization of HIV-positive gay men. So the point here is that pursuing a strategy of optimizing a healthy sexuality can take a lot of different forms and can have different consequences. And that makes me more reluctant to draw simple conclusions about whether this is a positive or negative thing.
0: That's interesting because you just concluded that when you, you know, brought up individual optimization versus more a collective uh, sort of approach or action, that, that's exactly where my mind was going because it sounded like uh, the wellness and optimization at first sounded like it was really a focus on the individual, but uh, but I can see where sort of public health or as you say, a more collective consciousness comes into it, so yeah, really interesting.
1: Thank you, yeah, and I think that in general when people talk about wellness, um, Uh, I mean, for many academics, I think there has been an understandable tendency to emphasize the way in which that discourse tends to individualize, you know, like when the HR department of a company encourages all of its employees to go out and eat right and, uh, you know, exercise and, you know, what's really going on there? Well, you know, our health matters are being treated as just a kind of individual issue as a way to save companies money on their, you know, their health insurance payouts. Well, yeah, you know, so there is a lot of that going on, but there is this other side too. And I really did want to capture more of the nuance as I thought about the different things that this quest for sexual health is actually bringing different groups of people at different times.
0: So some other groups that sexual health has, or I should say some other groups that are using uh, the term sexual health to different ends appear in chapter 10, which is Bridges to the Future. And you write about bridging work. It's an interesting concept. So, And it was really a fascinating story, too, that you used to illustrate bridging work. Would you just explain a bit about how the Christian right and the political left have engaged in bridging work with sexual health?
1: Thanks. Yeah, I, I really, I like this chapter and I did learn a lot by researching and writing it. It was fascinating for me, uh, for instance, to go to Colorado Springs, Colorado and visit Focus on the Family, the conservative Christian organization that's generally anti-gay, anti-choice, and you know, talk to their staff, including the staff person they call their sexual health analyst, and find out what in the world does sexual health mean to them. In the chapter, I I describe how um, not just how sex has become central to political divides, because we all know that, but how groups on the right and on the left are using the idea of promoting sexual health as a bridge to other political goals. On both the right and the left, people are imagining a future. And sexual health assists them in bridging to that imagined future. So how does that work? Well, on the right, first of all, as various scholars have been telling us, it's wrong to imagine that social conservatives are anti-sex. They Nowadays, they are very much pro-sex, as long as the sex is performed by a married heterosexual couple. And there's lots of sex-related discourse on their websites and on offer from their experts about how to have better sex as they imagine it. They believe in better sex. They believe that good marital sex is ordained by God, and right-wing organizations and experts offer lots of advice about how couples can can do it better, how they can make the sex more meaningful, more authentic, more pleasurable, and as they often put it, more healthy. So they're claiming the idea of sexual health also, and they're explicitly using a quasi-medical, quasi-therapeutic language, in part because they want to have a broader social influence in a world where medical language carries a lot of weight, and they create bridges between this sex advice and social criticism. In particular, they, they bridge from an analysis of kinds of sex that they deem unhealthy, porn, uh, college hookup culture, etc. not to mention homosexuality, Uh, They want to bridge from that to their political work in which they try to reinforce traditional family forms and patriarchal gender relations. So they think sex and politics line up. And It's it's a little ironic here, uh, although people on the right often criticize those on the left as being supposedly very politically correct and enforcing political correctness, in fact, what they're doing ironically is assisting that the personal is political, that what happens in the bedroom is connected to what happens in the broader society. So that's on the right. On the left, social critics are doing a different kind of bridging work, of course, and in their case, for example, they're bridging from the problems of sexual assault and non-consexual sex to a broader critique of gender inequalities in our society today. And so here we see the influence of the hashtag MeToo movement, right? It's called attention to the generally problematic character of so many sexual encounters nowadays. Uh, some of these encounters are blatantly non-consensual. Some are just kind of icky. And these voices on the left are saying, sexual health would mean a rethinking of consent and of the conditions under which pleasure is possible and meaningful for all the participants. And so here, the idea of sexual health opens the door to broader conversations about what it means to have sexual self-determination. What does it mean to be a sexual citizen of our society? So on both the right and the left, uh, then I think people are are laying claim to the idea that sexuality can become healthy, and they're linking that goal to a broader vision of bringing about social change, and linking it to ideas about what the future could hold, and finally they're linking it to a vision of education, not just sex education or sexual health education in the in the narrow sense, although yeah definitely that, but. You know, education in a much broader sense, the, the political education of the people, of the citizenry, to adopt a guiding philosophy about what a, a healthy society could look like. And yet, of course, needless to say, these two visions are very far apart.
0: Indeed. It'll be interesting to see which way that, you know, who's sort of winning, because it's like the United States. This is going to be 50-50 for a long time. That's exactly right. 40, 40. And then there's 20 something else in the middle. Um, You mentioned education and not just sex education, but I did want to bring up sex education because you referenced the feminist social scientist, Chris Barcellos several times. And and Chris Barcellos, I interviewed them on this podcast Mm -hmm. a few months ago Mm -hmm. about their book, distributing condoms and hope. Um, And among other things, they write about sex education and intervention programs being centered on what not to do and how not to be. So on prevention rather than promotion, even though they're called promotion, sex promotion. And I wonder how is this a dilemma for approaches to educating about sexual health?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, Barcellos' book is is a powerful critique of education programs that try to intervene in the lives of young uh, Black and Latina women, and make them behave in ways that are imagined to be more, uh, quote unquote, responsible, right? And yeah, Barcelos makes, uh, Barcelos makes this great point. Uh, we, we call it sexual health promotion, but so many of these programs never get around to promoting anything. All they do is forbid. Uh, they tell young women of color what not to do, right? Uh, and these programs are not working with, uh, we could say they're not working with the positive conception of sexual health that's suggested by that WHO working definition where sexual health should be more than just the absence of disease. They're really just concerned with preventing bad outcomes, uh, sexually transmitted infections, unwanted pregnancy, et cetera. And so these, uh, these negativistic programs fail to pay attention to a number of important things, uh, that Barcellos makes clear, and that's that's why I cite their work. They they uh, these programs don't talk about pleasure or desire. They don't emphasize the agency of the women that they try to reach out to, and as Barcellos describes, very importantly, they they don't they don't imagine waves of giving marginalized women the kinds of resources, uh, educational, social, economic resources that would allow them to exercise that agency, that would allow them to make meaningful choices about their bodies and about how to express their desires. So, so that's the dilemma, I think. You know, could, can we actually promote sexual health if we don't and, and, and adequately educate people about sexuality, if we don't simultaneously challenge all the social inequalities that leave so many people incapable of living lives where they can exercise genuine control over reproduction, where they can negotiate consent and safety, and where they can seek out pleasure. And that's why in the in the conclusion to my book, I talk a lot about how to focus attention on all the people who typically get left out. So let's talk about trans people and gender non-binary people and intersex people because so many sexual health education programs and sexual health programs generally write them out of existence and don't even consider them as possibilities. Let's, let's talk about people with cognitive disabilities, because so often it's imagined they can't be sexually healthy and really they just shouldn't be having sex. Let's talk about incarcerated people, because the sexual health risks in prison are huge. But mm. There's very little discussion of that. Let's talk about asexual people, because we shouldn't assume that people who don't want to have sex can't be healthy. So in order to be meaningful, I believe the goal of sexual health needs to be brought together with broader conceptions of social justice.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You brought up the asexual people. I wanted to ask about that because... Speaking about sexual health and and particularly the idea of optimization and wellness, and it seems to entirely leave that group of people out because the idea is that even with the Christian right, yes, it's important to have sex, to have more (laughs) sex, to have lots of sex. And, you know, Viagra, the the more, the longer, the better sex you have, the healthier you are in a way, (laughs) or at least if you're doing it in a heterosexual marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, But for asexual people, what does that say? You, know, you can't be healthy. Or I think it's a
1: great point, point. Um, and, and it's, it's it's one that I take up uh, you know ex- explicitly in the in the conclusion because it seems like a great test case. Yeah. Uh, you know, just we, I talked at the beginning um, of our conversation about how broad and how capacious this idea of sexual health has become. Could it be expanded to even include people? who are not um, interested, who believe it's, it's not part of their sexual nature to want to have sex. And this raises the, that, that debate about norms and about um, medical diagnosing. It raises the stakes considerably because there's a very long history of conceptualizing people who are uninterested in sex, as having a kind of mental condition, um, as having a um, disorder of sexual arousal. And uh, therefore, there is a problem with them. They deserve, you know, a, an international classification of diseases, a numerical code assigned to them. Uh, they should get treatment, etc. cetera. And on the one hand, of course, you want to hold open the possibility that people are not happy with the... Um, they're not having sex, should, should, uh, you know, should be able to get treatment, but on the other hand, uh, you want to be careful about making assumptions, because when it comes to sexuality, everybody is different, and surely one of the ways by which people differ is in the amount of sex that they want to have. Um, so it seems that the asexuality movement has put a lot of things on the table. One thing that they've put on the table is that not all asexual people are the same. There are many different ways of being asexual. It's now considered an umbrella. There are many different terms. There's aromantic. There's lots of different categories of uh, asexuality. And so it's a complicated set of ways of being. But what we've also seen are a number of scholars have begun to write about how we can talk about a definition of sexual health that includes the possibility of asexuality, of being asexual as as part of it. That treats that as part of a spectrum of sexuality, and that um, sees that as consistent with a kind of um, self empowerment and self definition that we would want to associate with uh, with that with an ideal conception or realization of sexual health. So I personally think, yes, that's right. And that um, uh, what we're beginning to see is a movement beyond a, uh, a stigmatization of asexuality as inherently or by definition not uh, sexually healthy and toward the inclusion of asexual people within a broader uh, umbrella, broader conception of, of sexual health.
0: And I think that might vary across somebody's lifetime as well. You know, Mm -hmm. some people may age and not feel that uh, as the, you know, advertisements will have them believe that you should continue to be having pleasurable sex all the way up into, you know, who knows, your 80s, your 90s. And, you know, the men can have Viagra and the women can have estrogen cream or what, but, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe some people want to become asexual at some point in their lives whereas they didn't before.
1: There's no question that people experience all kinds of sexuality related changes and shifts in identity over the course of the lifespan. At least some people do, some people stay very consistent and that's yet another way that we differ, right? Is in the degree of uh, flexibility and variation in our sexuality over the life course. Um, And uh, this, uh, you know, the, the variable of age, which you and age category that you bring up here, is just one of the many ways by which people differ, along with you know race and ethnicity and religion and class and gender identity and sexual identity and you know immigration status and you name it. That's relevant to the issues that I t- that I talk about in the book and that complicate any simple consideration and that require us uh, you know at the same time to be thinking about. Uh, uh, questions of, of sexuality and health in the broadest way and questions of uh, social inequalities and group identities and conceptions of group difference because these intersect really powerfully.
0: It is truly complex. And I want to sort of go, go to the book's subtitle as well as the book's conclusion mm-hmm. right now. So because the book's subtitle refers to sexual health as an elusive ideal. And in, in the last page of your conclusion, you bring into question assumptions by made, made uh, by many of the actors described in the book, uh, assumptions about the primacy of sexual health as the path to addressing a host of social issues. Which you 've mentioned, and I wonder, do you think the ideal the ideal of sexual health is something of a mirage, or could it be more a way of framing desires than an actual path to fulfilling those desires hmm.
1: its it's not really that I think it's a mirage uh, sexual health is a is a meaningful goal, though in fact it 's many different goals right it, it's one goal to doctors and researchers it 's another goal to policymakers it's yet another goal to private industry. It's one goal on the right. It's another goal on the left. So the point is not to reject this powerful kind of suturing of sexuality to health. Uh, You know, the point is not to say, Oh no, sexuality should never have to bear this burden of being healthy, but rather I think to figure out which particular visions of sexual health we want to endorse. That is, I think we have to take stands, but, Yes, I, I do also think at least sometimes we should question the primacy of sexual health as the path to addressing social issues because, you know, at the end of the day, our lives and our politics and our culture are, are animated by and should be animated by many different things. People care about a lot of stuff. There are many goals that uh, that motivate us, and so maybe it's a mistake to transform the quest for sexual health into a a, a catch-all for every project of social and individual improvement. Maybe uh, we should we should treat sexual health as important, uh, as crucial, as worth fighting to define, but you know, maybe it isn't everything. Maybe we should sometimes just demote it a little bit and insist on the importance of other goals, other projects. That's the kind of balance that I was getting at. That's the kind of balance that I would also like to propose.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, Steve, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I I did want to ask you one final question because this book was quite an opus, but uh, you are an academic you seem quite energetic, so I imagine you're working on something else now. <laughs> I wonder if, if you could tell us what your what your next project or your current project is.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. It was uh, a, 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 a bit exhausting to take on a topic as big as this one, though. That doesn't seem to stop me from taking on big topics, for better or worse. And as, as I was starting to hint at earlier, I, I, I'm interested in understanding some of the broader shifts we've been uh, experiencing in who counts as an authority, who counts as an expert in different worlds of health today, and you know, so here sexual health is a great example. But I want to move beyond the example and talk about health more generally. Um, I, I recently published an article with uh, Stefan Timmermans, a medical sociologist at UCLA, a colleague and friend, and we argued that you know, on the one hand, biomedicine is becoming ever more authoritative, more so than in the past. We've got all these new medical technologies that reveal risks and predispositions that, you know, that are transforming our lives, that extend the remit of biomedicine. And yet, um, on the other hand, the authority that's actually exerted by medical doctors and by biomedical institutions is increasingly overshadowed, I think, by other kinds of experts in the broader domain of health. So if you think about the worlds of complementary and alternative health, if you think about the kinds of authority increasingly exercised by patient advocacy groups, a topic I've been studying for a long time, if you think about the information that's available online and on social media from so many sources, there's, uh, there are, as I was suggesting about sexuality, but it's true more generally, advice from so many quarters about how to live our lives. So who speaks in the name of health, is a bigger question I want to address. But of course, um, as COVID has demonstrated so clearly, this is a really vexed question because expertise is proliferating and diversifying at the same time that our distrust of experts has probably never been higher. So I feel that the stakes are substantial and that these questions are, are especially timely.
0: Yeah. Timely is the word I was thinking of. I think that's a really important topic and I can't wait to interview about your next book on it.
1: Well, I look forward to that.
0: And everyone, the book again is uh, The Quest for Sexual Health, How an Elusive Ideal Has Transformed Science, Politics, and Everyday Life. Stephen Epstein. And Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been really uh, enlightening and really fascinating book to read.
1: Thank you. Um, I have enjoyed the conversation very much, Rachel. I really appreciate it.